Good evening. Hope everybody's okay. The uh, weather outside is pretty dense. So glad y'all, obviously you guys made it here safely. Uh, we're praying everybody that's, that's out traveling does. So glad you're here. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Leviticus, believe it or not. Chapter 21. So we'll be working through some things tonight. We may go, I ain't making any promises, but we may go a little quick here on some things. Um, really glad everybody is here. Uh, January the 24th, I will say that uh, January 24th, 2021 was the day that I preached in view of a call here at Taylor's First Baptist. Y'all know that? It's three years ago. I don't know if anybody was here. Was anybody here that day? Anybody here? Good, good, good. Um, we, uh, I preached, I think we had two services, and I was, y'all scared me half to death. And I said, Allison, I hope they vote me down. And uh, I'm just kidding, totally kidding. But I did make a plan, if y'all remember. Does anybody remember where I preached from that day? Revelations. Remember, it's not Revelations. It's Revelation. It's only one, okay? And, and does anybody remember the chapter? Huh? 12? Somebody say 12. There we go. Now we're talking. See, now we know who our people are. And uh, chapter 12, and I preached from verse 11. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and it simply says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And so speaking about the devil and how we conquer the devil by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and we do not love our lives even unto death. So really thankful, still believe Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. I don't know if y'all do. Hopefully you do, and even more so now than before, but just really thankful for it. Three years, Allison's back there. We're thankful, aren't we, Al? And, uh, and just really a, a blessing. I preached, I was supposed to actually preach in view of a call on my birthday, which was January 17th. But I, uh, court, uh, COVID was forced upon me. Um, and so everything got pushed back a week. Did y'all know that? Everything got pushed back a week because I was sick. And I thought it was a sign not to come. But the Lord, we persevered through it. Just kidding. And so 24th. My first Sunday was February 14th, and I've uh, been thankful ever since. So just really thankful for you guys and glad to, to continue in this work together and excited. Um, that means we started that next semester, I think, uh, not long after I got, I got here February 14th. wasn't long after that. I began to teach on Wednesday nights, and uh, we started, and this is where I'm getting at, we started in Genesis 1. And so therefore... Almost three years. It'll be at the end of February when we started. Almost three years. We're in Leviticus 21. I don't know what your expectations are or were, but uh, that's the reality. So hopefully your expectations can be met with reality and we can all be happy. Um, so we're going to look and continue to look at Leviticus chapter 21. A lot, a lot, a lot of big and great things happening in the life of our church. If you don't get our weekly email, then uh, that's the, I mean, we, we communicate things 10,000 different ways. Now, sometimes we don't communicate them the way you might like them. That doesn't mean you can't figure out what's going on. Does that make sense to everybody? So we communicate this way, that way, and every way. We got slides rolling. That's just not noise. You got all of those slides before, while you're eating, tell of all the events that are happening. We got an email that goes out. How many of y'all know what email is? Okay, see, it's, it's viable. And so we have an email that goes out that has every event, and if the event has a sign-up, there's a... If you're not getting that email, all you got to do is call the church office. They'll put you on the list, and we will happily send you that. We got our monthly church newsletter that goes out. They do a great job with that. All of those things are available. And so when we talk about the things going on from our reach ministry with Stephen and, his, and events there to our equip ministry and all that's happening to big events like uh, coming up next month, we have our lunch with the staff. If you have been visiting with us 
I'm going to get in trouble because I don't have any idea when these are, but they're coming up. If you have been visiting with us or you actually you're supposed to say you're a guest, not a visitor, because visitor sounds like you're from outer space. If you are a guest with us and have been coming, then um, we would love to have you come with our lunch with the staff where you meet everybody on staff, every position. You're able, we got you a meal right after the 11 o'clock service on Sunday morning, and it is February the 18th. The 18th, the 18th, February the 18th. And we'll have that on that Sunday. On the 23rd of February, we've got, what's it called? Huh? Cheyenne, speak up, Cheyenne. Married a night for two, is that what it is? We got evening for two. So we got an evening together with us in this space for our uh, marriage enrichment time together. And it's exciting. Um, uh, and we're going to have that, sign up for that. We'd love to have you here. And uh, a lot of other stuff. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. But let's stop and just say find out what's going on. And come on and just be a part of it. Much less everything we have in our weekly our weekly services and other things. So with that being said, thankful for what God's doing. Leviticus chapter 21 is what we're going to look at. And my desire tonight, really, and I don't, don't laugh. My desire is to do 21, 22, and 23. It will be in an overview sense as we move through this section on holiness. The word holy or holiness is speaking to the separate or the, uh, peculiarity, and I use that sense in a, in a way of a different way that the believers, the Christians, or the people of God are to be. They are separate. They are different from the world, and God has called them out. So the idea of being holy is the idea of one set apart. That's literally what it means, to be set apart. And so they are different and set apart for God's glory. So we've talked about the fact that as the New Testament says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so what it means to be holy, we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks through our passages, and I want to kind of look as it continues this idea in 21, 22, and 23. So let's pray together, and we'll look at those together tonight. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be together, and you are good to us. God, we, we thank you for that. Everybody was able to make it here safely tonight, and we just pray that uh, as we look to your word, we'll be guided by it, encouraged by it, strengthened by it, and we'll have a desire to live for you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you move through the idea of holy, remember this comes from uh, chapter 19, kind of working through here, and it says in chapter 19, verse 2, if you want to underline or highlight any verse or in, in the book of Leviticus, to me, this is the heart of it. You shall be holy for I am, I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so we saw how we have one that we are to, to uh, see as God is our authority. We look to him that our holiness is not in comparison. We don't compare ourselves to others or other nations. We compare ourselves unto the Lord. He is our standard ultimately and then what it means to be holy as you keep his statutes he is the lord you keep his word you keep his commandments you you do not sacrifice to pagan gods you do not give your love to another in other words that you follow after the lord and so it says in chapter 20 verse 26 you shall be holy to me for i the lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples you should be mine and so my emphasis and point of pointing us to Hebrews where he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord, is to connect in this way Leviticus with the New Testament. Oftentimes Leviticus takes the beating of that's the Old Testament, right? Leviticus 20 takes this beating hard. That's the Old Testament. We don't have to, to pay attention to those things, remember? And so you kind of say that's, we, we want to talk about the New Testament. Well, the New Testament Peter says, without holiness, no one sees the Lord. And so what does holiness look like? We go to Leviticus, and it helps us to see what holiness looks like. And remember, some of those points in the idea of holiness is teaching us not just the exact nature of what it is saying, but the principle that it is teaching. For example, he says in holiness, you are not to have two different threads in your clothing, right? 
You're not to sow two different seeds together when you are sowing your field. What, is that just some rule he is making up? What is going on with that? Because I don't know what this is made of, but I think it's a couple different things. And so am I now in disobedience to that? Well, no, I think that call is a reminder to the people that they are different. It's, it's, it's a picture. It's a word picture. It's a life picture for them that as they sow their seed, they're not to sow two seeds together, reminding them that they're not to live with the other people of this world and mingle with them in the sense of the gods and their pagan rituals and cultures, right? Reminding them of what it means to be separate out. That's why they have only one, one, one uh, fabric or material together because we're reminding them we don't intermingle or mix. So it's not as if it's got, trying to give just some hard rule that you, don't, you can't have two different types of of uh, whatever it is, thread in your clothing, it's teaching us that we are different. And it becomes a principle, a picture of these things. And so we, we saw that a little bit last week and moving through. And Leviticus is continuing to teach that to us here in chapter 21. In chapter 21, you see holiness and the priests. This is not the first time that the priests have been mentioned. We saw them before whenever the the sacrifices were given there at the first part of Leviticus, and then it was told how the priests were to act in accordance with those sacrifices. If I could summarize chapter 21, it would be simply this. Those who lead God's people in worship must show a special degree of separation or holiness to God. It is a calling to lead the people in holiness. It's a calling to be the example for them in holiness. So the priests were to be an example. So as it goes through 21, you see a couple different things. It says some stuff interesting. The Lord said to Moses, chapter 21, verse 1, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband, for he may make himself unclean he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself the priest was not to partake in the rituals for the dead if you will we've talked about this before there was a clear separation from death for the priest it was to be about life so if someone in other words the priest couldn't do any funerals unless it was his closest of relatives, right? Does that make sense to everybody? The priest was not to do any funerals except for his closest relatives. And why was this? Because when you were partaking with a dead body, there were rituals or things you have to do to purify yourself after the fact. And so even in the morning of it, when you see Joseph died, it was seven days. When Moses died, it was like 28 days. There was some sort of cleansing. And so if you were having to cleanse yourself, having partaken in death rituals in mourning, if you were having to cleanse yourself of that, then you're not ready and prepared to lead God's people. You're not ready to be in the mix with them. So there were certain things you were not allowed to do because you needed to be ready at all times to lead God's people in worship, to lead God's people in sacrifice. And when we speak worship, we'll talk about it in a minute, sacrifices, the, 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 uh, the events that they were to do and what have you. So ultimately he's saying as a priest, you're not to partake in these mourning rituals. You are not, even, it continues there. This is good, verse 5. They shall not make bald patches on their heads. Thank God that that is, again, Jesus, and nor shave off the edges of their beards. I feel like sometimes he's talking to me. And nor make any cuts on their body. So ultimately what he's saying here, these, these by the way, are pagan rituals during death. It would be some way to show mourning 
if you will, when someone close to you died. You would shave your head. You would do something with your beard. You would cut your body as a testimony of mourning the death. And so he's saying to them, we don't mourn like the pagans mourn. By the way, that's straight out of the New Testament, right? We, don't, we may mourn, but it's not like those who don't believe. We may have sadness, but it's not like them. It's the same type idea. We don't mourn like those who don't follow the Lord mourn. We mourn differently. We watch ourselves as priests to say we're not partaking in these things. We don't have these pagan mourning practices. There's no self-inflicted blemishes, if you will, as it says. Don't cut yourself. Don't do anything to your own body as if to show some mourning. You don't do that. Why? Because... You must be presenting yourself whole before the Lord. We don't mourn like the world does. And so if we have to bring sacrifices, it'll say to us a little bit later about our sacrifices we bring. And when we bring sacrifices, they can't have blemishes. Like one animal's leg can't be longer than his other leg. You know, stuff like that. And so you're, you're, the animal you bring has to be whole, has to be perfect, right? has to be right before God. So any blemish on it is not worthy for the Lord. So if you are a priest, then you have to be, you have to be without self-inflicted blemishes. So you are different than the priests of the pagans. You're different than the priests of the Egyptian gods, right? You're different than those. Y'all remember the priests of the Egyptian gods? Y'all remember those guys? They, they, they did a couple tricks, you know, when the Lord, when Moses turned his rod, the Lord turned his rod into a snake, and they did some tricks, and they did some stuff for long, they were defeated, and what did they do? It speaks of the fact that they punished themselves. Or you remember the gods of Baal on, on the mountain whenever Elijah called down the fire, and he's, the pagan gods punished themselves. They were killed or mistreated because they proved that they weren't fit. So it is for the, the priests of the Lord, they are not to punish themselves or mutilate themselves or bring any blemish upon themselves. It keeps going on down. He's not only do you not mourn like others, therefore you must be whole. He also speaks to how your marriage and your family matters as a priest. Do not be unclean. He speaks to marriage and family there in uh, Verses uh, 13 through 15, do not be unclean. Back in verses 10 through 12, um, all of these ways that we are to, as priests, we are to understand those who are leading God's people to be without blemish, to not mourn or not promote death in those ways that the others do, that your marriage and your family matter in who you marry, what you are to live, and how their lifestyle works you are not to be unclean and you are to be whole as it says in verse 16 not only do you not punish yourselves in affliction but you are so to be one who is whole physically as you present yourself to the lord now ultimately the point here is this the leaders the priests are to be holy and uncontaminated morally, if you will, as they lead God's people. Uncontaminated morally. And so their physical nature, their, their actions, everything should point to the fact that they are seeking after holiness. Seeking after holiness. The priest should be pursuing it. And the priest should be pursuing it more so than even the people. The priests become the example to the people of what holiness looks like. Right? Now, there's a lot to this that I'm speaking to myself. I'm, we're working through well, all of these things, and so you're looking at leaders. Some of it is, is right along with what we see in the New Testament. So turn with me in Titus. Turn with me to Titus. Paul's letter to his buddy Titus. Paul is writing to Titus as Titus, just like he does to Timothy, and does the same thing in Timothy. He's writing to Titus just as he is like a young minister and he's telling him what the qualifications are. And so if you look at it, qualifications for elders, I want to get to this in a minute. Uh, this is an elder or leader in the church. So we hold basically that elder, overseer, pastor are the same office in the New Testament. They're used interchangeably. Does that make sense to everybody? Pastor has the, the sense of the, the preference for, for myself and others. 
Pastor has the sense of shepherd is the same word for shepherd, so you're shepherding a flock. Elder has a sense of leadership. You know, we had, Allison and I had a great time at our, I've told y'all the story of Miss Harold, Miss Geneva. Y'all, somebody came up to me, and it's like some of y'all now know Mr. Harold, Miss Geneva like crazy. I want to tell you the rest of the story on that one. I do. This was Sunday, if you weren't watching this, this sermon. Miss Geneva, I found out later, was on 14 different medications. It was not my preaching that put her to sleep. It was those pills she was putting in her body. So I found that out later, and uh, ultimately, to be honest, though, that medication did her in. So all that to be said, I, I didn't. I didn't. It was, it was the medication. Um, when we were at that first church, the Lord kind of brought some young people to our church and they were coming, we were at this little country place, and there wasn't anything out there. The only place to get something to eat was the grocery store or the gas station, you know what I mean? And there was a Dairy Queen across the street, and that just was So Allison started cooking every Sunday for all of them, uh, the, the seminary students and these college and, you know, young pros that were coming. And before long, it got to be like 30 or 40, some other seminary wives and other things kind of kicked in, and we would have them all to our house. And they'd be like, we'd eat, and then they'd all be asleep on the floor, just laid out everywhere. you got to walk over them. Um, and it was fun. We had some characters come into that. I mean, some strange people. You know what I'm saying? Like, looking at it now, I'd be like, what in the world were we thinking? You know, these people are different. And so we had one kid, and I'm just telling this story because I like it. We had one kid, who, uh, who a seminary student, real smart guy. He's actually been a chaplain for the Navy and will retire soon as a chaplain for the Navy. He's been in there for over 20-some-odd years. He's a real smart dude. And, and he was complaining because his back hurt. He's like, man, my back hurts. Well, this other kid that we just met got up, walked into the kitchen, and said, Miss Allison, you have any cooking oil? And Allison's like, sure. Boom, hands her cooking oil. He comes out with this big bottle of Wesson. And he says, hey, man, let's go out here on the porch. I'll put some oil on you. And we'll pray about it. And the kid that was real smart, he looked at him and said, are you an elder? Now, James tells us that when you're sick, gather the elders together and pray, right? Anoint them with oil. The Lord will hear your prayers, okay? I'm not trying to get into that passage right now, but it comes from the leadership of the church, okay? That's, you gather the elders together. The key in the whole passage is prayer. Y'all see what I'm saying? There is no official in that passage magic that comes with the oil. The key is prayer. And most people would argue that the oil was considered healing or some sort of medicinal purposes as well during that time. That's it. But this guy goes, are you an elder? And this boy looks around and goes, I think I am the oldest one here. And the real smart kid goes, all right, let's go then. And so, it, you know, on our porch, no telling what people thought when they were driving by in the car. Some kid bent over, and another kid with Wesson pouring it on his back, doing like this, and it was healing it. So those are the kind of events we had. That's not what is meant by elder. It is not speaking particularly of age. Does that make sense, everybody? It's speaking of leadership and what the qualifications for those who are leaders within the church. In fact, the word elder is the same word, presbyteroi, is where the Presbyterians get their name from in their denomination, right? And so we see this in here, elder, overseer, bishop, and pastor are all used interchangeably. So when it speaks to this, it is speaking to us about church leaders in our church today and what the qualifications are. I'm speaking about my qualifications as pastor. When I came three years ago, these were things we went through with the search team, qualifications-wise, things I would answer. And so when Paul writes to Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
Do y'all see how this is falling in line even with what Leviticus 21 was saying? The family must be in order. Those who are uh, considered to be priests for the Lord must be in order. The family must be in order. They must remain holy. And listen to what he says. For an overseer, again, interchangeable with elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. So when we see what's saying in Leviticus, there's not much difference even with some language and some other object lessons thrown in than what the Lord requires of his leadership today within the church. But let me tell you one difference. I am not. I may be an elder, overseer, bishop, or pastor, right? As the New Testament puts it, I am not a priest. Does that make sense to everybody? Priest has a specific understanding of who and what that is. A priest is one who is called the vicar of Christ, right? So a priest's job is to intercede on behalf of the people. The priest was the one that would go into the tabernacle, into the presence of God for the people out here. When the priest is understood, you have to go through the priest to speak to God. Therefore, some traditions who have priests would have it where you have to go speak to the priest to get absolved from your sins. You have to go speak to the priest in order to ask for forgiveness. You have to go speak to the priest, right? Well, we believe, as the New Testament says, the priesthood belongs to all of those who believe. And why is that? Because in Leviticus 21, the requirements for the priest are not met in the church leaders of 2024. The requirements for the priest are met in the one who is our great high priest, Christ Jesus. He's the only one that comes without blemish. He's the only one that comes in holiness. He's the only one that comes in purity. He's the one who has not given himself over to any of those defiling things, which when we read Leviticus 21 is why we recognize what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the only priest qualified, really, for his people. It's giving us those qualifications there. And so what we find in Titus and other places speaking about church leadership today, elders, pastors, overseers, what we find there is how we are to reflect our great high priest who has set the standard for holiness, who has set the standard for holiness. And yes, church leaders, as Peter would say, have a qualification they have to meet that is even more careful as it says that you walk circumspectly because you will be judged twice for such things yes those things are there so those those intensity of it remains but i'm not your priest i got better news than that i got better news than that i'm telling you you don't have to come to me to ask for forgiveness of your sins you can speak wherever you are to the great high priest christ who intercedes on our behalf he's our priest and not only is he our priest, he is also the, the, the spotless sacrifice that was offered for us. So he's the priest who was the sacrifice who offered up himself in our place. And so here we see in Leviticus these things only, like all of Leviticus should do, only makes us go, thank you, Lord, for Christ. Thank you for who he is and what he's done. He does not have to offer a sacrifice for himself. Because he's perfect. He offers a sacrifice for his people, intercedes on our behalf. And the reason why I say that as the New Testament teaches the priesthood of all believers, it's because we can enter into the presence of the Lord himself because of our great high priest, Christ Jesus. Therefore, we're all qualified. That's why Hebrews tells us, come boldly into the throne of grace. Right? That's the only, the throne room of grace is referring to that holy of holies as it's speaking to. And in these Leviticus days, the only one that's going to be able to get into that is the priest, high priest, one time a year. He's got to offer multiple sacrifices for himself before he can ever enter in, right? He's the only one that can enter in. But now we who know the sacrifice of Christ 
who've been washed by his blood, who confess his name, we can come boldly, as the priests used to do, we can come boldly into the presence of God and make our petitions known. Not timidly, boldly, it says. So that's Leviticus 21 speaking and pointing us even to a high priest who is greater and better for us. Leviticus 22 continues in this same theme. Really, 21 and 22 are mostly about that priesthood. 22 teaches us that when God's people and their spiritual leaders show respect for God and his word, God molds them into a holy people. You have to watch all things. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. That's the priests. Speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. The priests are not to rob from God. They're not to steal from his holiness. They are to offer it and leave it there. The priests are to keep their lifestyle holy. They're to live holy before the Lord. It also here speaks to the gifts that are brought must be holy. You give your best to God. You don't bring unholy gifts or improper gifts to the Lord. You give your best to the Lord. And I believe, I believe that speaking more than just how we dress on Sunday morning, right? That's how my grandma thought it meant. And you give your best to the Lord, it means you got to put on your best outfit. But I believe he's talking about more than that. He's talking about our worship. He says when you come into worship, you give your best. It's the idea of first fruits, right? It's the idea that we don't give God the leftovers. We don't bring those out first. I was on a trip to Honduras. We were building a building. I was mixing the mortar. have no idea if that building's still standing. But I knew it was seven shovels of sand and three shovels of mortar, and you put the water in there till it looked right, okay? Maybe that's backwards. But I was doing that. And we were working all day. It gets dark, and we go to eat. And we're eating fish from this lake that's right there where we were. And we're like, oh, man, we got fish tonight. This is going to be so good. And the sweet lady that worked the camp brought out some fish. And, man, it was the boniest, worst thing I've ever eaten in my life. I worked harder to get a piece of meat off that fish than I worked in three days mixing mortar after mortar after mortar. I was exhausted, tired, and that fish was doing nothing but making me mad. Big old tray of it, and I'm sitting there going, how am I going to do this? I'm starving. We're in the middle of nowhere. There is not, you know, there's no jalapeno cheddar dog at the QT. And so I'm sitting there going, what in the world? Well, after about 30 minutes, here comes a sweet little lady, and she said, that first batch, I just wanted y'all to have that first. That was the backs and the tails. Here comes the real stuff. I just got up and went to bed. Already exhausted, frustrated. Oftentimes, without knowing it, we do the same thing to the Lord. We give him our backs and our tails first rather than the best of what we are and what we have. And what the teaching is here in chapter 22 is you bring your best to God. He gets the first. That's why it's right for us to wake up in the morning when we're at our brightest to read his word, right? It's right for us to set aside those times. You may say, that, uh -uh, I'm not a morning person. I'm an evening person. Well, that's fine. You give your best unto the Lord, not your weakest or your worst. Now, hear me when I say the Lord wants it all. But when we are offering our worship unto him and we're giving him back what he's blessed us with, we don't give him the secondary or the tertiary or even beyond that. We give him what we have as best. And we trust him with it. And so when he's speaking to the priest, he says, you don't let the people bring their worst here. You bring your best. It's the best lamb from your, from your fold. It's not just the one you don't want. It's the best one. And why is that? Because it's this, it's this principle the Lord teaches us. When we give him our first fruits, the blessings that come from our faithfulness in giving him our, our best in worship are far beyond what that first fruit was, if that makes sense. It's the increase. 
It's the greater. When we, uh, my, my granddad and my parents did the same thing. And I, again, I don't, I don't mean this any other way, but I remember vividly that taught Alice and Allison's parents were the same way. It was back in the day, you know, on Fridays, every other Friday, maybe once a month, you would actually get a paycheck. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Nowadays, that stuff just poof, it's in your bank account. Back then, you would get it. And I remember my parents, every time they'd come home on Friday, they would get their paycheck, and with it, they would write their check to the church, and they would take it, they would deposit the paycheck, and they would drop that off. Even my dad is pastor, drop it off on that day. Why? Well, he said, if I save it till Sunday, I might spend it. I might get used to it. And so ultimately, in that way, it was teaching me, here's how we give. We give our first and our best because where we spend that money testifies to where our faith really lies and where it really is. Where we give those things testify to where that really lies, where that faith really is. And so he's saying, your worship should resemble your faith. And if your worship is coming with the backs and the tails first, then you have a faith that only can sustain you for your backs and your tails, right? Not the meaty portion, not the good. And so you come with these first. You give your best unto God. And in doing that, you teach them to be holy. Look at chapter 22, verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Holiness means obedience. As 1 John says, you say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar. Holiness means obedience. It can't, it, it, in its very essence, it can't really mean anything else. There's no way to be holy and not be obedient, right? Not follow the Lord. I mean, when we say obedient, that has such a negative connotation. Man, I got to be obedient. That's telling me like a, you know, like I'm like I'm a dog trying to do this. But 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 think of it in a different way than that. Lose those modern negative connotations to understand. It's not just obedience. It's faithfulness. It's not just doing it. It's 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 being it's being righteous. It's doing those things. So we have to, in some way, have a standard for what is right and what is righteous. And the Lord is saying, I am that standard. So if you want to do what is right and righteous, you have to follow me. And as we talked about with the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are not meant to hold us back. They are meant to help us flourish as a people. They're meant for our good, right? If you are a serial liar, it's going to catch up with you. Your life's going to be miserable. You're going to spin out of control trying to keep those things together. It's better to tell the truth. You flourish when you tell the truth. And every one of those is, is pointing us that direction. That if we're going to be holy, we keep the commandments of God. We keep his commandments. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said what? Follow me. And in those two words becomes the essence of Christianity. It's not just the sense of, wait, get behind me and walk. It's a sense of follow after my, my ways. Follow my statutes. Follow me. The leader has to lead the people in the commandments of the Lord. I am the Lord. That statement, I am the Lord, runs throughout these passages because in some way, maybe the Lord was, was recognizing that some of these things are going to be hard, some of these things are going to be difficult, so his authority starts there. I am the Lord. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm the one with authority here. Keep my commandments. He goes on. Keep my, verse 32, and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I want, I want us to say, I think that one of the great problems, even in the church today, not just Taylor's first, we don't have any problems. Greater church is the practical, and hear me when I say this, practical atheism that exists. The practical atheism. People who claim the name of God or claim to be followers of God do not live like him. They live as if he doesn't exist. Because in, in, in reality, if God exists, then in, in just truest shape, 
if there is a God, and I believe there is, so just stick with me. If there is a God who created everything out of nothing, sets the rules for it all, and says, here is my standard, you must live according to this or you're in rebellion for me, right? If that God really exists that we read in the scriptures, then we have to, by very definition, answer to him. He's the one we have to answer to. He's the one we have to look to. And so ultimately, when you sin against him or you live in disobedience, you're acting as if he doesn't exist, right? Or he doesn't matter at all. You're acting as if the God of the universe doesn't exist or doesn't matter and you're going to do what you want to anyway. Sometimes we acted just like that. None of y'all did. Y'all were great kids to your parents. You knew what the consequences were. You either knew, one, I'm not going to get caught, right? Or you knew, two, I don't care what they think. I'm going to do this. This makes me happy. So you do these things anyway because you know they have authority, but you disavow or disregard all of that authority as if you don't need it. Well, guess what? The Lord sees and knows all things. We live our life before an audience of one, and we surely, I used to think, by the way, I can say this, I used to think we get away with stuff with our parents. What I've learned is when I go to tell my mom, hey, mom, did you know I did this back in the day? Oh, yeah, I knew you did it. I knew where you were. I knew how much money you spent doing it. I knew. I, and she starts listening out. I said, well, why didn't you ever say anything? She said, too much hassle. <laughs> Just watched it and make sure you didn't do anything more stupid, right? Oftentimes, our parents even know exactly what's going on when we don't think they do. Well, definitely the Lord does. The Lord knows. We live our life before an audience of one, and we have to raise that standard. And if we act like, if we live our life like we can make our own decisions in obedience and what we do and how we go, then we're living like he doesn't exist. And the great problem then becomes practical atheism. Practically living like there is no God. So the Lord is saying, your lifestyle testifies to your belief in me. How you live testifies to that you believe. Believe is a, is, a, is a powerful word, you know. You say you love God. Don't keep his commandments. You're a liar. Jesus said, you know, uh, if you believe in me, you have passed from death to life. You know, believe is an action word. Does that make sense to everybody? It's not... A simply in scripture while there is this uh, intellectual component of course we have to know it and we we understand it but knowing it and understanding must lead to action right you believe something then it's going to cause you to act upon those things uh, the simple example is when you came in tonight I don't see anybody standing up you believed when you sat down that chair would hold you right so you sat down most of you without any thought or anything to it. You acted upon your beliefs. In fact, some ways you probably didn't even think about it, but you still exercised your belief when you sat because you were, you were demonstrating, I believe this chair will hold me, so I sat down. And so it is with belief. We have intellectual assent. Yes, we believe certain things. I believe certain doctrines. But then if those beliefs don't turn into a lifestyle of action upon those beliefs, then you have to question your very nature. Is some misunderstanding. There's some dysfunction and disassociation with belief and action if you can separate those two things. Your orthodoxy, which is your belief, your right belief, ortho meaning right, doxy meaning worship or belief, right? Orthodoxy must match your orthopraxy, your right work, right action. Those two things go together. As one preacher I heard preaching one time said it much better than that. He said, your theology has to match your duology. What you believe must be shown in what you do. This becomes the whole point of the book of James. James is not destroying the idea that justification is by faith alone. When James says you're justified by your works, he's not ripping that apart. He's actually building upon it. And how do you know? How do you know you're justified? It's because what you do. How do you know that you believe? It's because your actions bear that out. So if you say you believe but you don't follow after him, then... There's no meat to that bone. It's just words. 
So when he's speaking to Leviticus, he's, in Leviticus, he says, listen, keep my commandments. Why? Because you have to be holy. And that's the way you demonstrate your holiness in following after him. Then he says something important. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. When the Lord says, keep my commandments, he does so quite often building upon the very nature that you have been redeemed. In other words, and, and, and this is the same thing we talked about in, in, in Exodus chapter 20. Whenever the Ten Commandments are given, they start with, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, right? So the basis of the Ten Commandments is, is not the work you must do to find redemption. That's already been accomplished. I have already saved you from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Now, here's how you live in light of it. We've talked about that many times. So he's saying the same thing. Keep my commandments. I'm the God who saved you. I've already redeemed you. You don't have to earn my favor. You don't have to earn merit here. I'm not saving you, redeeming you based upon your work. I've saved you and redeemed you based upon my love for you. I've called you out of that land of your slavery and bondage. Now, because of who I am and what I have done for you, in light of that, keep my commandments. I've saved you and redeemed you. Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. So the keeping of the commandments is built upon the redemption that Christ Jesus for us today has already accomplished for us. He's already accomplished it. Go to chapter 24. 23, excuse me. Sorry, we, no way we're getting to 24. We saw first that God's, those who lead God's people in worship must show a special Special degree of separation of God or holiness. We see how when God's people and their spiritual leaders uh, respect for God and his word, God molds them into a holy people, leading them into faithfulness. And finally, chapter 23 begins these religious occasions that are to be a part of the rhythms of those who are in the people of God. God uses religious occasions and holidays here to teach his people to be holy so he goes through this list the feasts of the the feasts of the lord the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the people of israel and say to them these are the appointed feasts of the lord that you shall proclaim as holy convictions they are my appointed feasts so the lord is going to give the people rhythms of life right so you have weekly honor the sabbath you'll start having monthly where you you'll have yearly you know what i'm saying you have these things throughout the calendar that are put into place to remind the people of who they are and what the lord has done for them that's what all of these are to remind them again of who they are and what the lord has done so so if you just have i just got a couple things here first they help you learn holiness right these feasts or these rhythms help you learn holiness through the sabbath through the passover through the feast of the first fruits the feast of weeks the feast of trumpets all of these that you can read the day of atonement feast of booze all of these that you can read their purpose is to teach you what holiness looks like what the lord has done what holiness looks like that's the purpose of these things if you look i think it's verse 37 38 these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day beside the Lord's Sabbath and besides your gifts, besides all vow offerings and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. All of these things put together, the offerings that they did early, these feasts that they're to recognize periodically throughout the calendar, all of those things are to be done unto the Lord and to teach the people what holiness looks like. They're to speak to holiness, to do them. Then you have just a couple things here I want to point out. You must, as God's people, for example, take time for rest and for God. Verses 3 and 4 speaks to the Sabbath. Six days you shall work, be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall, you shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. I touched on this this past week and what it means to Sabbath and the Lord's Day in our, in our sermon. 
we as believers, as Christians, this side of Christ, do not practice a traditional Sabbath. Does that make sense to everybody? Not like the Jews did. The Saturday was the Sabbath, sundown Friday night, the sundown Saturday. All of the rules of the Sabbath applied to that day. So you got all of those rules. And remember how the Pharisees did it to protect the Sabbath. They would add rule after rule after rule. Can't make spit. That's work. That's doing work. Can't do this. Can't do that. They're trying to protect the Sabbath on what you can do. And so some 500 laws were added to it on what the Sabbath meant and what you couldn't. They kept trying to get Jesus on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, the man was made us uh, the sabbath was made for man man wasn't made for the sabbath you've got this thing twisted the lord puts the sabbath day in there as an example for us first of all he set the example there um, in creation he set that example and if you remember in creation on that seventh day what was meant for the people was not just simply a day of rest but perpetual rest they were to be resting in the lord now when we think of rest, I know what I think of rest. You know what I'm saying? You got several levels of rest. You got sitting in your chair and you just kind of fall asleep real quick kind of rest. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Sometimes that's in your car. Sometimes that's at a stoplight. Sometimes it's some inappropriate times, but you just kind of close your eyes and get a little rest. You got those naps where you kind of stretch out on the couch or the floor. Most of that happens on Sundays. You got those naps where you actually get back into bed. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Those are, the, those are, those are serious. You, get, you got, there's rest that we're talking about. When I'm saying this, I'm not talking necessarily about sleep in that sense. What I'm talking about here is that there is a perpetual rest or peace or comfort that we are to live in, right? That we're to live in. And that day was set aside to Teach the people that you must rest as the Lord has shown us. The Lord didn't rest because he needed rest. He's the Lord. He's given that as example. You must rest. In other words, we're not to be workaholics. Y'all know the word workaholic came from a Southern Baptist? Y'all know that? Wayne Oates, Southern Seminary professor, 1960s. Uh, he's the one that first penned the word workaholic. It was, a, it was a sense of which there's this, there's this movement where we say you have to do this all the time. You have to constantly be working. And, and the Lord teaches us that there are times we must rest. In fact, I believe rest must be a regular rhythm of our life. Why? Not, because, not just because physically we need it. We do it every night physically, right? But because it also reminds us of where our true rest lies. Because when we rest in this world, we got to get up and get back to work we got to keep going. But we're longing for the day where we can rest completely in Christ. And like I said this past Sunday, as Christians, we don't take all those rules of the Sabbath, pick them up, and move them to Sunday. That's not how it works when you do Scripture, right? That's not a, a hermeneutical principle that is valid. What we do do is say our rest is found completely, not in a day, but in a person, Christ Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That's what Hebrews chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 are pointing us to. We don't rest in a day, we rest in a person. So our rest in this life reminds us of our rest that is to come in Christ. So it is for the people. They were to stop for a day and think, there's coming a day when the Lord will have give us final and complete rest in him. These rhythms teach you that. Let's think of our rhythm quickly. Sunday morning as we gather together. You know, church can become so many things. And we have right now roughly three services, 1,600 people, you know, and they're coming. And everybody and their brother has some sort of preference of what they want or what they like or what we think we need to do. You know what I'm saying? Everybody does. You guys are all on the same page and everybody's happy with exactly what we do, but some other people deal with it. At the end of it, though, the reason why we gather together as believers is because we look forward to a day when we'll gather together for eternity. In other words, heaven is a, I mean, Sunday morning should be a glimpse of heaven itself. Now, before you go, well, 
you know, the music's got to get better. If that's going to happen, they don't, they ain't going to, you know, we ain't saying no rugged cross in five years, so I don't know. <laughs> Before you get there, I'm talking about the picture and image itself of people gathered together, different backgrounds, different places, different walks of life, but have come together under one banner, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we sing and we worship and we celebrate. That is a reminder that we're not just living for this world, we're living for the world that is to come. It teaches us and spurs us on to holiness, to what God has called us to be. That's why the Lord put these rhythms even in the life of Israel. And that's why we still have these rhythms in our weekly work. Because that's what he's called us. We take time for rest and we remind ourselves that our rest is found in the Lord. We remember God's redemption. You see this in, in, uh, there in verses, uh, the Passover itself. Verses 5, in the first month, of the 14th day of the month at twilight. Every year, the people of God are to remind themselves that there was a night one time. There was a night one time that the Lord told us that there's a death angel coming. And that death angel came, but the Lord gave us a deliverance from him. He said, you put the blood on the post, you do these things, and I will save you from that. Right? That's the Passover. He says, this event reminds you that God has delivered you. God has saved you. He's provided a sacrifice. He's given the blood that has been placed on the doorpost of your heart so that the death angel passes over you. An eternity of eternal life is given. These rhythms remind us of these things, how God has provided for us. We remember that in, even in the special provision of the manna that was given when they say the seven days shall eat unleavened bread. How the Lord provided for the people in the wilderness there in verses 5 through 8. We, we also remember these occasions because we acknowledge God as the source of all our blessings. If God's people should be anything, we must be thankful. In fact, Paul writes that over and over again, right? In thanksgiving, right? Do all things in thanksgiving. We should not be curmudgeons and mad. I knew that about Miss Geneva back in those days. She was curmudgeonly mad. Turned out it was the medication. We shouldn't be curmudgeon and mad. It shouldn't be a joke for us that when we get old, we get hard to deal with. You know what I'm saying? It should be that we as a people, no matter what age we're at or what we're doing, we should be the most thankful of them all. We should be the most gracious and thankful people. Why? Because we recognize, as Paul said, there's not one thing we got that hasn't been given to us by the Lord. There's not one thing that we've been blessed with that he has not given us. And so, therefore, we are thankful. And not only are we thankful, we should also be the most optimistic of people. And we can look around and we can see how our world's diving in and it seems like, man, this place is bad. And that can, stuff can get you down. But remember, we don't live for this world. Not only should we be thankful, we should be optimistic. The Lord is in control, right? And we trust in him. And though he fail me, yet I shall live, as Job said. Job is saying there's no failure in him. That we as God's people are triumphant and victorious no matter what. We should be gracious. These rhythms of life that the Lord established for his people were for them to be holy and to be thankful. To be holy and be thankful. And the more thankful you are, the more you desire holiness. The more you recognize that, man, I've got nothing if I don't have Christ, is the more you want to follow him. The more you see Jesus plus nothing equals everything, you know, and the fact that we know him and have him is by his grace and mercy in our life, then the more we say, thank you, Lord, how can I live for you? Teach me your ways. Establish my thoughts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be gratifying good to you, O oh Lord. 
That's what holiness means. That's where it leads us. And may we as God's people pursue it just as the Lord lays it out for us. Because just as Leviticus 19.2 says, be holy for I'm holy, Peter says the same thing. The Lord, as the Lord has told us, be holy for he is holy. It's the same pursuit we have. We just have this pursuit by the grace and mercy of a Savior who has made us holy. As it says here, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Be holy. The Lord makes us holy. And we follow after him in gratitude and thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us and giving us your word. May we grow every day in love for you. May our hearts and our lives be a testimony to your graciousness. May we be a people that are thankful. All of this, God, we, we pray and we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you Sunday.